Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The Derek Chauvin trial continued this week as we heard from experts saying that George Floyd died from a lack of oxygen and not because of drugs or health conditions. We also heard a lot of people describing the crumbling of the blue wall of silence. We heard from Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Arredondo and several other officers that worked with Chauvin testify that his actions were not necessary and out of line with police training. For more on this, we'll speak to Janelle Griffith national reporter at NBC News. The blue wall of silence at its core, it's an unofficial oath among police officers not to report a colleague's wrongdoing, and that includes criminal activity. So if you were to witness them commit a crime on an assignment or responding to a scene, you would just keep that to yourselves or keep it among yourselves. What we're seeing in Derek Chauvin's trial which, like you said, it is remarkable. Not only are some of his former colleagues testifying against him and testifying for the prosecution, but his own former boss, the police chief, it's very rare for a police chief to testify against an officer. And that's why it's getting so much attention. And on top of testifying, they're saying extremely damning things. They're saying that Derek Chauvin went against their training. They're saying that his actions are not reflective of the department. I don't know if you are aware, but in June, about a month after George Floyd died, the police chief had put out a very sharp, harsh statement criticizing all four officers who were at the scene. And he said outright that one officer at the scene was responsible for George Floyd's death and the other three did nothing to stop it. And that obviously he was saying that Derek Chauvin was responsible because he was the one who knelt on his neck. So we are seeing, at least with regard to this case, the whole blue wall concept come undone. And I think from the experts I spoke to, I spoke to both legal experts and law enforcement experts, and they told me that the reason why is because they believe that these officers and the police chief himself found Derek Chauvin's actions indefensible. And they think that had these officers or any officers really, whether they're in Minneapolis or elsewhere, publicly tried to defend Derek Chauvin, it would indict kind of policing as we know it. And the police chief was careful not to indict the entire profession. He has singled out these specific officers. And in order to perhaps maintain morale, he did so. And he also has made it clear that he has taken issue with these four officers. He's not trying to suggest that there's a problem with the entire Minneapolis Police Department or policing as we know it. I mean, it's definitely a chance for them to kind of change the perception of police and policing them speaking up against this. And let's run down briefly who we heard from. We heard from Police Chief Medaria Arredondo. We heard from Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman. He's the longest serving officer in the Minneapolis Police Department. Inspector Katie Blackwell, she's the commander of the training division. You know, she said that she didn't recognize, you know, that knee position. That's not something that they teach. And then Sergeant David Plager, he's uh, uh, Chauvin's former supervisor. Former supervisor, yes. He responded to the scene after George Floyd had been taken away in an ambulance. And his testimony was also damning because 
again, not only did he say that the restraint should have ended sooner, he also went further and he, through questioning, he explained that Derek Chauvin did not immediately divulge that he had knelt on George Floyd. And it wasn't until after George Floyd died and he started, Sergeant Hauger started probing more and asking more questions, then it came out that Derek Chauvin had knelt on George Floyd's neck. And even then, he didn't say for the extent of time. He wasn't transparent in how long he had knelt on his neck. So these four people combined, I think they really helped the prosecution. And like you said, it may have larger implications. The experts that I spoke to are hoping that it does. They're hoping that it opens conversations for why this hasn't been done sooner. They're hoping that it stands as a precedent and it encourages other officers across the country that when they see their colleagues doing something they shouldn't be doing or abusing the badge, so to speak, that they report them and call them out so that they can maintain integrity for the policing industry itself. And this case specifically, obviously, we have the video. Many, many people have seen it. You know, Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. That's different. Uh, and you made mention in the article, too. You know, it's different than the act of shooting somebody, which does require those split second decisions, whether right or wrong. You know, those can be argued on their own cases. But this is different. It's not that case of like, oh, man, I'm scared for my life. I shot him. This was this deliberate act that took place over the course of minutes. And this could be another reason why these other officers are speaking out against that, that it was wrong, because it wasn't that split second decision. You hit the nail on the head. That's absolutely what we're hearing. Experts have said. And also, even while they were going through jury selection, a lot of jurors who were dismissed, they said that they cannot be impartial. They feel like it was just that egregious. They've made up their minds. They have determined in their hearts and in their minds that what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd was wrong and they would not give him a fair shot at a fair trial if they were selected for the jury. And it is unique. Not only is it the length of time, the mere fact that we have a video, it's very rare. We have many videos. It's very rare in a criminal case that you have so many videos from so many different body cameras, from so many different angles, from city surveillance footage, from the convenience store where George Floyd is alleged to have used a fake $20 bill to buy cigarettes. There's so much video. The most damning, of course, or the most harrowing, of course, is the one of Derek Chauvin on top of George Floyd. But there's so much video that it makes it hard to turn a blind eye to this, regardless of where you stand on the issue. So, I mean, we're going to keep monitoring the trial, obviously, to see what happens. But as I mentioned, just something really remarkable where we saw these officers say, This is not what we train. This is not how we train officers. This shouldn't have been done. And them saying it's obvious that it shouldn't have been done that way. So we'll uh, see, you know, uh, very impactful in the case so far. And we'll see how the rest of it turns out. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This week, we also heard a lot about vaccine passports as it's become another contentious issue in the country, with governors in Texas and Florida signing orders banning them in their states. The argument is that it will reduce individual freedom and harm patient privacy. Still, many private companies are planning to move forward with requiring proof of vaccination before using their services or to go see live sports events. For more on the fight against vaccine passports, we'll speak to Jordan Davidson, staff writer 
at the Federalist. On Monday, Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order which prohibits the government from mandating a vaccine passport. He said it should be a personal choice. And while he is encouraging people to get vaccinated and Texas vaccinations have surpassed 13 million, he says it should be a personal choice. And in addition to mandating that the government can't do that, he also blocked any entity that receives public funding from requiring documentation uh, in exchange for goods and services. So that means that any businesses or any organizations that receive government funds are not allowed to require a vaccine passport. Like I said, there's a lot of discussion surrounding this. Private businesses obviously can do what they want. With these orders that we've seen out of Texas and Florida, I think Utah has a law blocking uh, certain things at college campuses or state government buildings. I mean, that's still the dividing line, right? They can only mandate things that uh, have to do with the state government and not private businesses, right? Right. And that, that's where most of the tension in this discussion lies is how far is the government willing to either mandate this or stop other people from mandating it? And a lot of private businesses have used the same approach when it comes to masks. And a lot of these states that are doing these, like Governor Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, have rolled back requirements for masks and other COVID mitigation strategies. So we've seen this tension play out over the last year. But it is a matter of how much does a private business have the opportunity or the ability to do when it comes to requiring these kinds of things. Let's talk a little bit more about the kind of overall discussion, the the personal freedoms, a lot of hesitancy from uh, GOP voters, conservative voters, to wanting to get the vaccine even. There's a lot at play that, at this, and some are saying the politicization of the vaccine passports can maybe contribute to more hesitancy. Uh, how do you see that playing out? I definitely think it's a, a politicized issue. And one thing that we're seeing with the vaccine passports is I think a lot of people are nervous, especially after the last year, having a lot of government mandated things that were new and kind of unprecedented and feeling a little bit trapped by what the government was telling them to do. And so that is adding to the hesitancy. And we're seeing sort of mixed messaging from the CDC as well on when you receive a vaccination, are you safe against the virus or can you go out? Do we still have to wear a mask? There's still a lot of back and forth on that. So I think it is confusing. And I think the government getting involved and potentially looking at what a vaccine passport might look like, even if it's just for private businesses, could severely hurt the direction the U.S. is going with vaccination campaigns. The Biden administration, for their part, has not said that they will mandate any type of vaccine passports. Dr. Anthony Fauci said the same thing. He doesn't think that the government will will make anything mandatory. They might issue some type of guidance, but they're not going to go full into it. But there are a lot of companies that are working to develop these passports. And, you know, like I said, private companies are increasingly saying they might be using them, especially when it comes to major events like sporting events. The NBA uh, Miami Heat, they're offering a vaccine verified seating. We're seeing this in New York. The Mets announced that any fan attending a game either needs to show that they're fully vaccinated or have a negative COVID test within 72 hours. So despite kind of the discussion going on with the government, these private companies are still kind of moving ahead with it. And I mean, man, it, it just seems like there's going to be a mess with just kind of regulations all over the place. And this is where a lot of conservative voters and leaders lie on is you don't want to restrict people from doing things, especially when the vaccine itself is not mandatory. Right. And I think that's where our biggest problem lies, is especially with these big businesses and big tech sort of getting involved in this vaccine passport sector. We've seen how large companies have exploited people 
And I think that's where the most hesitancy lies is, you know, do I really want these big companies to have my information and to be able to tell me what I do? It's not the government, so it is different. They are a private business, but it's still a concern and it's still something that I think is on people's minds and that they want a conversation on. They want their elected officials to address, which is why we're seeing more and more governors and kind of elected officials get into this conversation. So, like I said, we we've spoke about uh, Texas, Florida, Utah has some laws. Have we seen any of these other types of reactions in other states uh, uh, building up? I think it kind of started, you know, with people rolling back the mitigation techniques. So Greg Abbott getting rid of his mask mandate. Obviously, Florida has been open for a while. We're expecting Indiana to get rid of their stuff this week. Wisconsin, I believe, lost a lot of their restrictions last week. So I think the buildup is coming. And as more and more of the United States starts to be vaccinated and Biden continues to roll out this plan, I think it's going to become more at the forefront of the conversation. And, you know, I think I think big businesses are very aware of that. And I think they're trying to do their best to keep their business and make people feel safe, but at the same time, also accommodate, you know, what the, what the government is going to tell them to do or not tell them to do. Yeah, definitely. And, and the privacy issue is a huge thing as well. You know, if anybody does these types of you know, any tech company develops whatever it is, an app or, or however it can play out. I mean, it's got to be done in coordination with the CDC to make sure that those vaccination records are true and accurate. So the privacy issue plays into this as well. It's going to be a sticky conversation that's going to stick with us for a little while as we continue to open up. And as you mentioned, you know, as states kind of ease these restrictions, uh, everybody's going to kind of stake their side. Jordan Davidson, staff writer at The Federalist. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We also heard this week about a new shortage hitting restaurants because of the pandemic. Ketchup is getting hard to come by. More precisely, ketchup packets have been hit by supply chain problems, and the market leader Kraft Heinz is having trouble keep up. In the meantime, restaurants are looking for alternatives and different ways to offer single-serve portions. For more on the shortage of everyone's favorite condiment, we'll speak to Heather Haddon, Restaurants reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So it is specific to restaurants. It's like you said, restaurants that are reopening from the pandemic and are needing to serve ketchup in ways that they didn't used to. So a lot of these full service restaurants typically had a you know a bottle of Heinz on the table, glass bottle, and now many of them um, are still having to use ketchup packets because of health or sanitary reasons during the pandemic, and it's made them very hard to buy and very expensive. So the price is up something like 13% from last year. Um, as just like you said, the supply chain has really changed abruptly and it's left these restaurants scrambling. And, you know, for some of them, the prices have gone up, as you mentioned, 13%. Long John Silver's is one of the examples you used because of, you know, all the extra ketchup that they needed to go through this way and, and the prices, they had to spend an extra half million dollars just on this stuff. So tell us how important ketchup is. It's the most consumed table sauce at U.S. restaurants and even more at home. Yeah, it's incredibly important. The sales last year in restaurants, which was obviously depressed because of the pandemic, it was something like 300,000 tons of ketchup sold to food service. And people spent something like a billion, I think it was a billion dollars on it in retail last year. So it is hugely popular in the U.S. It's very important to restaurants. You know, you think burgers and fries and all the other stuff you put on, use ketchup. And the uh, market leader really is Kraft Heinz. So the Heinz signature bottle you see on restaurants, it's really, it's got a dominant market share here. And because of this, they've been really facing a lot of this supply 
change rerouting during the pandemic. And they've had a huge demand increase in retail and then, you know, had to shift a lot of their attention. There are warehouses and factories to that and away from restaurants. And now that restaurants are, you know, ramping up again, they've had to switch back. And that's tricky. Yeah, Heinz has 70% of the market share when it comes to ketchup in this form and fashion and not disparaging any other ketchup brands, but it's almost a little disappointing when you don't see that Heinz ketchup. It's just so synonymous with uh, ketchup in restaurants. And as you mentioned, they're changing their production. It's going to continue for some time, it seems like. They're barely going to open up two new uh, plants to address this issue. They've been working people around the clock to address it, but it still seems like it will be something going on for a little bit to come. So tell us a little bit about how Heinz makes their ketchup. They grow theirs in the Central Valley of California. They use a, a variety of different tomatoes to get exactly what they need. It still is a signature recipe. I mean, it's hard to find products today where one brand has so much of the market share and you know, the knockoffs really aren't anywhere near as close or the competitors, uh, the branded ones, but Heinz has it for ketchup. You know, they're very protective of their of their recipe and their formula and stick by it. And a lot of restaurants do. I mean, they really want to serve their customers Heinz because that's what customers expect and what they like to do. And it's been hard for them to not be able to do that. Tell me the story of Chef Justin Fraser and Blake Street Tavern in Colorado because they are Heinz people. They've been using it for 18 years. And when the shortage kind of started to happen for them, they went to an alternative and then they had to apologize to customers for not having their trusted Heinz. Yeah, so the shipment um, they usually expect came in short, they said, from the distributor. They just didn't have any Heinz at time. So they had to run out and just grab ketchup, I think, from you know a third-party supplier or some of the other restaurants I talked to even went to Costco to just try to get some more ketchup. And so, yeah, the owner, who is real Heinz loyalist, did have his servers apologize to customers. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, it's just almost symbolic, all the things that restaurants have had to go through. This is yet one other thing. I mean, they've been dealing so much. So, you know, they don't want to lose their customers right now that they're finally coming back. It seems like most people have been understanding, but they have been trying to be extra sensitive. And that's why these supply chain issues are so interesting to me. A year down the road, we're still feeling the effects of that. Uh, you know, the, the companies haven't been able to adjust as quickly enough. And as you mentioned, you know, some restaurants going to Costco looking for alternatives, that trial and error of how to serve the ketchup to coincide with the rules of, uh, you know, you can only use uh, single serve plastic containers. Uh, you mentioned some of the restaurants using steel souffle cups that often ended up in the trash or in paper cups, but that would dry out the ketchup. It seems silly to hear about it, but these are the difficulties that restaurants had to go through to get it right for their customers. Yeah, no, there's a very practical element of running a restaurant. I mean, you have to serve things in a certain way. I mean, they're very regulated. A lot of these states did originally put in pretty strict uh, reopening rules. A lot of them have now been a little more relaxed, but customers also come to expect things to be in single-serve packets or make sure it's sanitary. Um, they don't necessarily want a bottle on a table while cases are still around. So, yeah, they're having to meet all these different requirements and with, you know, a supply that is really going back and forth still. I mean, over a year into the pandemic, we're still dealing with this. Well, we might see the packets, uh, a shortage of the packets for a little bit more, but hopefully they can rebound and get that back together for everybody. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. 
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.